0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to CyberWire X, a series of specials where we highlight important security topics affecting security professionals worldwide. I'm Rick Howard, the Chief Security Officer, Chief Analyst, and Senior Fellow at the Cyberwire. And in today's episode, we are talking about bot mitigation by undermining the attacker's ROI. A program note each Cyberwire X special features two segments. In the first part, we'll hear from an industry expert on the topic at hand. And in the second part, we'll hear from our show's sponsor for their point of view. And since I brought it up, here's a word from today's sponsor, Casada.
2: you've spent a lot of time and money fighting automated attacks, but still feel like you're losing the battle, you're not alone. The truth is, bad bots adapt in seconds and evade expensive, difficult-to-maintain defenses. Now there's a better way, with Casada. Casada has flipped the script on bots, ending the game of whack-a-mole. Casada's elegantly simple, yet superiorly effective approach puts the burden where it belongs, on the attackers, not your business. Stopping bad bots for good. Casada takes just 30 minutes to deploy and shuts down malicious automation in real time with no manual setup, no annoying captchas, and no complex rules to manage. Casada stops the bot attacks others can't. Start today with a free instant test at casada.io/cyberwire. That's k a s a d a.io/cyberwire. And we thank Kasada for sponsoring our show.
1: I'm joined by Itai Moore. He's the Senior Director for Security Strategy at Cato Networks. Itai, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about removing the financial incentives that motivate cybercrime as a strategy to reduce the probability of material impact due to things like ransomware. And just to put some context around that idea, the threat intelligence team at Palo Alto Networks, Unit 42, they published research in June of 2022 saying that the average ransomware payment is just short of $1 million. It's million with an M, all right? And that's a lot of dough. So if we're going to try to remove the financial incentives to cybercriminals, that seems like a pretty tall order. So when you hear that as a potential strategy, in other words, that's what we're trying to do, What comes to mind in terms of tactics or the how you would go about it? When you think about this problem, Itai, what are you thinking about there?
3: So when I hear something like this, the first thing that comes to mind is actually a strategy or an approach that I really like that has been suggested by David Bianco years ago, the uh, Pyramid of Pain. And that concept talks about what is it that organizations have to do in order to cause maximum pain, so to speak, to To the, the attacker. To the criminal, yeah, okay. Exactly. And it's, it's like a pyramid. At the bottom, you have things like dealing with hash values and domain names and IPs. Not that there are bad things to deal with, right? Like if you want to put them on a deny list or, or on a watch list and so on. But at the top of the pyramid, you really have their tools and their TTPs. So how they think, how they operate. A concept that I think is kind of missed throughout the pyramid of pain when sometimes people look at it and only focus on the top is the holistic approach. So you actually have to touch and acknowledge each and every step that the attacker has. I think to stop an attacker, you really have to look at the attack as a holistic event and not as a set of separate events.
1: Yeah, it's one of my pet peeves in the industry that for the longest time, security practitioners like us, you know, we would focus on the eaches, the technical eaches. Let's prevent this exploit from happening by patching. Let's stop this piece of malware from happening. On and on, this bad IP address. And that doesn't seem to be enough and to stop the incentive from these ransomware people to make a million dollars on whatever victim they're going after. Like you said, it has to be so painful to them that they decide to uh, abandon it altogether and not even go for it. And what you're saying is it needs to be a much more comprehensive Defensive posture designed for, like you said, specific adversaries. Is that what you're getting at? Instead of approaching it
3: as, as, hey, let's stop the fishing or let's stop the, the malware that is infected the device, or we need to stop the whole thing and try to approach it and stop each and every step of the way, which, you know, at first we seem, hey, we have a set of problems uh, when you look at a ransomware attack, you know, especially one of the visualizations that I really like is when you take these attacks and put them on the MITRE attack framework, and it becomes really obvious that there are multiple stages of, of all these attacks, and um, instead of stopping just one of them and say, hey, instead of many problems, we have actually many opportunities. We have many uh, choke points, so to speak, in order to stop this. If we can actually look at the attack as a one holistic event that in which we can use all the different security tools that we have in order to share context and be able to stop it.
1: I feel like this is known throughout the industry, but hard to implement. I mean, the original white paper from Lockheed Martin back in 2010, the intrusion kill chain paper, they're the first ones that came up with the idea that in, instead of trying to block the eaches, that we would design our defenses around specific adversary behavior in their entire attack sequence. And, and if you look at the miter attack framework, probably the most comprehensive open source collection of that kind of activity, you know, those sequences have anywhere from 30 to 100 steps. Right? And like you said, that's an opportunity to prevent prevention controls in each of those steps. So even if the bad guy gets through one of them, they still got to figure out a way through the other 29 or 99, depending on how complicated their uh, sequence is.
3: Yes, the kill chain has been around for a while, but we've been looking at it as a set of solutions. I would call them very siloed solutions. And I get it. You know, I'm a security guy and I say, hey, you know, just integrate everything and make everything share context (laughs) and
1: information. It's so easy. Why are you not doing that? (laughs) (laughs) It's not. (laughs) If it's such a great idea, how come nobody's doing it, right? That's what you're saying.
3: <laughs> try to do this, you, you walk into the SOC and you see security engineers and analysts. And, you know, as much as it's nice to take a photo of somebody sitting in front of six screens, for them, it means sitting in front of six or more security products and trying to correlate and connect this information. And actually, what we're seeing is that a lot of these security professionals are becoming integration engineers trying to uh, share the data between, hey, I have my threat intelligence feed and... How do I weed out the false positives and feed them into my firewall or to the endpoint or to the sim and take that and feed it to something else? And so it is becoming very, very hard. I'll also mention one of my pet peeves is when I see articles on the Internet that say, hey, company X got hacked due to a phishing email and company B got ransomed due to a vulnerability in their system. And that also is like, it's like trying to point to a single point of failure when actually when you have a breach and when you have a ransomware attack, you actually have a systematic collapse of all your security products and procedures because it's never just the phishing was to get in but then they had to do lateral movement and collect passwords and do this and that and there's so many other steps
1: i totally agree with you there that that's one step out of the 30 or the 99 that the adversary had to do and you what you said is correct that wholesale failure of your entire defensive posture because they had to do all these other things to be successful i totally agree i cringe every time i see that
3: and when there's 1 million dollars at the end of the uh, of the day of course they're going to take the extra steps and 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 do these things.
1: Well, let's go back to what you said before about the complexity. This is 2022. When the Lockheed Martin researchers did their paper, that was 2010. Most of us only had our own data centers and maybe a couple of headquarters buildings. The complexity for implementing a defensive posture for intrusion kill chain was hard enough then when we only had that. But today, we're scattered all across all kinds of data islands, multiple cloud providers, SaaS applications. Now people are mobile everywhere. So the complexity of this entire thing has been really difficult. So as a security practitioner, what's your advice to uh, CISOs and CIOs out there? to How they think about this? And there's even more, right? There's
3: IoT and devices and bring your own devices. And, and oh, yeah.
1: Cloud <laughs> applications right. Let's not forget those. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, yeah, it is it, it, indeed extremely complex. I was asked uh, a while back, what was the number one threat uh, today to companies? And I said that the number one threat is actually not any of the threat groups that everybody discusses. The number one threat is the complexity of the solutions that we currently have in place. And I'm not trying to be as smart as about it. I really believe in it. Having an average of 30, I think, to five, to 50 in large organizations, security solutions is not easy to manage. That's one element. The other element is, going back to what you said, is we also want to make sure that with security, we have the policy following the user and not us trying to constantly chase him and trying to see if we can apply the same security requirements and policies from you know, whatever it is. If it's a user, if it's a cloud application, if it's, a, if it's in your data center, if it's somebody working in the office. It's, it has to be some form of consolidation or actually convergence of all these different elements that would allow you to have a central location to create a policy that will follow the user to look into every network flow and every element of and any connection to your network, regardless of what it is, and apply those uh, uh, apply context. That's extremely important. We're talking about actually. If I have to break it down, I'd say there are four stages here. First of all, be able to collect everything, all the network connections that are out there, whatever it is, wherever it's coming from. Then add context to it. You know, which user was it from which network? What were they trying to do? Apply the policies that you want to that specific connection. And then, of course, enforce it using the different security capabilities that you have in place.
1: So if we have any hope of putting prevention controls or even just detection controls for all the known adversary groups in the MITRE ATT&CK framework, and last time I looked, There was about 150 different campaigns that those guys keep track of. And that's not a lot, by the way. It seems like when you read the headlines that there's millions of these hacker groups out there. It's not, it's just a small number. And we know 90% of what they do in cyberspace. So it should be an easy thing to put those prevention controls or deploy those prevention controls in the security stack that you're running in your organization. But all this complexity we're talking about is what's causing the problem. And what I think you are outlining is that it's a shift in the security practitioner thinking. Say early 2000s, when we all sought out best-of-breed tools. We needed the best anti-malware solution. We needed the best firewall. We needed the best intrusion detection system. And so we would go out and buy all these eaches. And like you said, in, uh, even small organizations have 15 security tools in their security stack. And Fortune 500 companies, I've seen some with well over 300 security tools because they have the money to do that. But managing all that complexity has been difficult. So the shift then is away from best-of-breed To tools that are good enough and are uh, automatically orchestrated for you across all those data islands, right? We need one policy that says, here's the prevention controls for Panda Bear, and it deploys it to all the data islands that we have. The cloud providers, the mobile devices, the SaaS application, whatever it is. I'm looking for that kind of a solution. Is that what you're advocating?
3: Exactly. I'm like you said, from the early 2000s about layered security, and I like the approach of layered security. But it doesn't mean that for each layer you have ten different, so to speak, boxes, and then you have other layers as well. I mean,
1: or the same kind of box for uh, the cloud, but a different vendor back in your data center, right? That makes it even harder.
3: Exactly. exactly. I mean, I don't envy the security person who has three different firewall vendors at 15 different locations, and then they need to update the policy. Like you said, Panda Bear, we found a new IOC or we found a new signature. Update all of them. What about patching all of them and changing the policies? And there's so many other things. So chasing these, these boxes globally and also locally, is that's the on-prem kind of thinking. And I think with organizations constantly talking about digital transformation and what we need to do in order to be the best in our business, same thing has to happen with security and networking. We have to get out of this on-prem mindset.
1: So to go back to the original question, then we're trying to remove the financial incentives for cyber criminals to be successful, I guess. We're trying to prevent them from getting a million-dollar payout. That means we have to completely simplify our approach to deploying prevention controls for known adversaries, especially ransomware groups. That's kind of where we're falling down here, right?
3: Deploying and managing and yeah, the the whole life cycle of a security product. Now, not, not you or I are naive to think that criminals are going to start, you know, selling ice cream tomorrow because we put some, <laughs> uh, some new signatures in place or put some new products. Of course, they're going to. Uh, uh, sure, <laughs> they will. <laughs> um, I like pistachio. Uh, but. Um, It is something that we have to start implementing, and especially in terms of the ease of management and the ability also to, like I said, going back to my initial point, of having full visibility to everything. And trust me, it hurts me as a security guy to give the IT guys the (laughs) kudos. It starts with the network. It starts with being able to, to see everything because we've seen this several times and in ransomware attacks as well. If one path was blocked and, oh, wait, that company has a user who is working from home who brought in his own device. That's my way in. So... We, we have to have full visibility to everything. So it starts with seeing everything on the network and then applying, like you said, not necessarily just best of it, but something that we can manage, something that will provide us the context, something that will give us a holistic view and actually turn all these small elements that we've been looking for at so far to actually multiple opportunities to, to stop the attack.
1: Well, it's all good stuff, Etai. But we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, that's Etai Moore. He's the senior director for security strategy at Cato Networks. Etai, this is a fantastic conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Next is Dave Bittner's conversation with Sam Crowther, the founder and CEO of Casada.
2: So today we're talking about a red teamer's perspective to demotivating attackers. Um, I'd love to to dig in and and just start with some high level stuff here. Can we sort of establish a a, a ground level uh, baseline truth here? I mean, what are the things that motivate cyber criminals?
0: Look, I think the cyber criminals, uh, because, you know, there's obviously many different types of actors online, money, Opportunity to, you know, bring in cash to either support their families, support themselves, or a little bit extra on the side. Right. I think that's that's one of the, the biggest motivators. Unfortunately.
2: And so, what does that mean for the defenders in, in terms of you know having that be the reality? How does that inform how we set up our defenses?
0: What it helps us I and mean, I guess forces you know defenders to take a good frame reference, reference on. Is how much is there to be made, right? And I, I think it that really will inform the investment that's going to be required, or at least like inform how how much like effort and deliberate decision making needs to happen in order, in order to protect it, right? Like a really good example would be like if someone's selling you know stolen customer accounts right, on, a, on a website for two dollars a pop, that organization basically has to make it cost $1.99 or $2 or more for every valid stolen account that gets leaked. And that, that sort of just changes, I guess, the maybe some of the decision-making that's going to happen around the defense.
2: And how have we seen this play out? I mean, as as we've... I'm thinking of things like ransomware that's become more focused over time, and, and we've gone from irregular phishing to spear phishing. It, it seems as though... The the loot that these folks are going after, in many wake cases, has gotten bigger.
0: It, it has, right, and that's what's driving the more sophisticated actions. Because you know, I think a lot of like anti spam technologies for email and whatnot have lifted the bar, and so you know, while generic phishing can be profitable in some cases, clearly the ROI is not there, right? And so that's why they are moving, I guess, more up market in their attacks, so to speak, and moving to spear phishing, you know, moving to more damaging cases of of ransomware and and hitting organizations maybe in places that they weren't previously hit purely because there was somewhere easier they could still make a profit. You know,
2: there are some uh, old sayings about this sort of thing. Obviously, we talk about low-hanging fruit. There's the other uh, old chestnut about, uh, you know, if you and I are being chased by a bear, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Um, To what degree is that true here with this sort of thing? I mean, is... Is this a matter of raising that fruit so that there's less for the bad guys to grab?
0: It definitely is right, and and unfortunately, there is absolutely an aspect of you don't need to outrun the bear, right? That's that is an unfortunate truth, and and so understanding you know where else they're going to go is critical. But that also you know forces folk, and I think is a very good you know conscious thought that needs to be had in discussion. That needs to be had. Can they go elsewhere? Because there will absolutely be cases where they can't, where you are the only one that has what they want, and you know that's obviously a very different dynamic. But if, if that's the case, again, it you like it, it needs to inform the way in which you know you think about defending um, yourself moving forward.
2: Well, let's explore that. I mean, what are some of the ways that people can make it so expensive for these bad actors that it's not worth their time?
0: Well, this this varies a lot, right? Based on the problems that are that are being faced, right? And, and yeah, you know, I'm obviously very familiar with the space that we operate in, which is really focused on you know automated tools being used to abuse like websites, mobile apps, like com platforms and whatnot. So, a really good way to increase cost you know, across the board, especially in the area that we operate in, is actually increase the skill that's required to take out an attack right? Because it inherently narrows down the number of people that are going to be able to come after you, which means that, you know, internal security folk can you know, dedicate their resources to the ones who are going to cause the damage, which sort of creates a nice little cycle of it makes it more expensive for those more sophisticated folk because there's more resources focused on them.
2: And I suppose for your staff, it means they're not you know, chasing around, they're not swatting at flies.
0: Exactly. Right. That's, that's the, you know, the less flies there are to swat at, and the more, you know, actual big juicy targets there are to focus on, the better it is for us as the defenders.
2: Can you take us through how this works? I mean, what what are some of the specific things that organizations like yours puts in place to, to slow these folks down?
0: There's two real components to the way we think about this. One is skill, right? Because that's, that's a great way to waste someone's time if they need to learn totally new things that are likely to go elsewhere. And the other is actually compute cost, right? You know, in, in a day and age where you can yeah, spin up a server for, you know, 15 cents an hour and, and launch some pretty devastating attacks, right? If we can actually make it cost more at the compute layer, right, that is a great way to disincentivize, you know, any sort of malicious behavior at scale, right? Mm. If, it really undermines that you know truly the ROI equation that they do. It's going to cost me X dollars to gener- you know, to crack N accounts, and I can sell them for Y dollars, right? And if that equation does not make sense, they just will not do it.
2: Well, help me understand how that works. How do I increase their cost?
0: Yeah. So what we've done specifically, and, and this is actually this was attempted um, in I think the early mid nineties for email is. We basically design this concept of an asymmetric proof of work, right? So I think of it as a math problem that's far more difficult to solve than it is for us to verify. And so what that lets, lets us do is have a strong asymmetry in the amount of compute required um, in order to even attempt to launch attacks than it does for us to defend them. And so, like, thinking like that is, okay, how can you asymmetrically increase the cost of the compute layer? Like, proof-of-works are a very good way to do that. Um, and there also can be other ways, right, like tar connections. There's a plethora of different mechanisms that can be used, but being very strategic about them is, is very important because all of a sudden you could take someone's infrastructure cost from 20 bucks to launch a significant attack to tens of thousands of dollars if they're not careful. Uh, and that is, you know, the ultimate scenario.
2: And how do you do that while simultaneously not increasing friction for the legitimate users?
0: Yeah, so making sure that everything is done invisibly and at the compute layer is absolutely key, right? Because the reality is you know, bots and automated tools, when they're used to attack, are used because they can scale. And so while the impact on an individual may not be you know, substantial at all, right, and will often completely go unnoticed, When you scale that up, it becomes very problematic because, you know, the attackers are not doing, you know, one login every day. They're doing millions of logins an hour a minute. Uh, And so that's when, that's when, you know, their costs sort of exponentially go through the roof.
2: How does someone measure success with this? You know, if if I'm reporting back to my board of directors and I say, hey, we put something like this in place, uh, you know, what sort of numbers do I have in, in my back pocket to show them?
0: Look, so there's usually, there's a combination of the business metrics, right? And that could be decreasing fraud, decreasing customer complaints, increase in like conversion from new accounts that are created. But then on the flip side, um, you know, there's there's usually metrics which could be shown around like, well, how many attacks are these folk attempting? You know, today versus yesterday versus last week. And so if you can actually see a decline in the attack traffic, know it's having a great job because that just verifies you know not only are they not making the money the business can see they're not losing the money but the attackers aren't hitting as hard because it costs them too much
2: is there such a thing as sort of a i don't know a reputational advantage among these dark web operators do do they talk does word get around and folks say hey you know don't waste your time on this organization they've got things buttoned up pretty well
0: yeah, absolutely. That is that is something we find is is the folk who are responsible for launching a lot of these attacks or providing the tools will often just not support organizations that have good defenses in place because they know it looks bad on them, right? Like if they sell something to someone else, you know, in order mm. to maybe help crack accounts on a website and it doesn't work properly, it reflects poorly on them as the seller, right? Like they, they have these unbelievable marketplaces where they're all rated and so, you know, it's in their best interest to target websites that are going to be easier for for other folk.
2: So what are your recommendations for people who want to explore this, who who think something like this might be a good solution for them? Where do they begin and and what sort of questions should they be asking?
0: The first sorts of questions and and the first steps are usually to be, how do we figure out if this is a problem and, you know, why would it be a problem? So Hmm. looking at, you know, interaction points that someone is likely going to go after, right? You know, simple things like actually visualizing maybe login traffic over the last 14 days right does it follow a beautiful cyclical pattern, right day and night day and night or is it all over the place what are the sort of rates of chargebacks on purchases those sorts of questions are important ones and, and you know businesses will obviously have their own specific interactions like that but from there it's very easy usually to go okay there is there is a problem here that needs to investigate and to look at actually going to solve it
1: We'd like to thank Itai Moore, senior director of security strategy at Cato Networks, and Sam Crowther, the founder and CEO at Casada, for providing some clarity to us around the idea of botnet mitigation. And we'd also like to thank Casada for sponsoring the show. CyberWire X is a production of the CyberWire and is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they are co-building the next generation of cybersecurity startups and technologies our senior producer is Jennifer Ibin, our executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and on behalf of my colleague Dave Bittner, this is Rick Howard signing off. Thanks for listening.